Hi there, thanks for taking a walk down Main Street with us. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me is George Ellick. We've got plenty to discuss on this week's episode because although it was just 12 championship games and two from League One. We've got managerial departures in League One to discuss. We've got some FA Cup action to tell you about at the end of the pod. But we're going to start with a more important topic, and that is the fan-led review that was released just over a week ago, which we talked about on Sky on Friday night. We think it's important for us to start this podcast with a discussion of what is in the report, what we think it means for the future of English football. And then after 10, 15 minutes or so, Tracy Crouch is going to answer a few more specific questions about the contents of it and their plans going forward. So a bit of me and George on the fan-led review, a bit of Tracy Crouch on the fan-led review, and then the usual football discussion. All the time codes in the description. George, uh, we spent much of last week thinking about this, reading this, researching this, talking to people about this and amongst ourselves about this. And I think the more we did, the more strongly we felt about this fan-led review being so important and particularly needing to be discussed and using our platform to do that. Because I still think, even though people have seen headlines about it and read articles about it, probably the people who it affects are listeners of this podcast and many of them won't won't have digested it all. Well, I think it's, it would be unfair to expect every football fan to sit down and read a 165-page document of which there are a lot of recommendations as to what should happen in the view of, of Tracy Crouch and, and, and you know her group who looked into this. But you're right. You know, I think you know, naturally a lot of the noise that has come from what well, that has come out since the review has been from those with the most power and those with the most money and those who have a platform to do so and that is inevitable but it meant that we had you know basically as soon as the, the report came out Christian Perslow was on TalkSport and um, was talking about the golden goose of the Premier League and and he said everything good in English football sits in the Premier League which I think we all agree that we don't agree on <laughs> if, if you do agree with that and listen to this podcast I'd recommend you you find another place to to go after that there were other Examples where we had Steve Parrish post a, a statement on the on the Crystal Palace website. We had Karen Brady writing a, a column in in the Sun. We had Angus Kinnear writing a, a column in in the Leeds Programme notes in midweek. Both Brady and Parrish's columns mentioned North Korea in reference to two completely different points on the um, on the review. And then Angus Kinnear mentioned the Maoist collect- collective agriculturalism, uh, which led to the, one of the biggest famines in in modern history, and 45 million people dying. So, you can see there, and you know anyone who who, who watched our Sky Sports segment on Friday night would have heard all this before. Um, but in my view, comments like that are one of two things. They are at best just showing a complete chronic lack of understanding of, of you know modern history and and facts and completely overblowing the proportion of it i think if you're if you're going to be more a, more cynical a cynic might say that they are deliberately disingenuous and you know i, I think back to the way that certain narratives around taking the knee you think of how suddenly a lot of people started saying it was Marxist. And, you know, as soon as the Marxist tag was being used to describe the taking of the knee, despite loads of players, you know, coming out and, and making it pretty clear what the actual action was to do with the the negative connotations of Marxism, even though lots of people who probably didn't even know what, what Marxism is, uh, meant that 
if they were opposed to it. And I feel like a cynic, again, may say that by using North Korea and by mentioning Chairman Mao, maybe it's an attempt, again, to use negative connotations to drive people away from, from what is just not a... The only reason why this is, is divisive is because it is, it is looking to take some of the ridiculous power away from, from the Premier League clubs. And again, and, and the key point here is that we shouldn't be looking to to argue here. This is an opportunity to bring everyone together to look to make football a more sustainable um, game in order to ensure that clubs' histories and heritages are protected, that fans have their own club looked after. Um, so we should be looking to come together to do that rather than uh, squabbling. But it's just important, I think, sometimes to call out bad behaviour when you see it. I agree. It's It's such a an amazingly detailed report, a fan-led review, which has fans at its heart. And it's ambitious. You know, there are a lot of recommendations. It is wide-ranging. And almost all of the responses so far, the negative responses, the ones that have made the headlines, have focused on money, have focused on business. And that's not the overarching point of the review, of the report. And it's not how it should be characterised. It's all about money and all about business. And that's, I think, something that, that we needed to talk about to make sure that people didn't think it was all about that, even if those people coming out against it, that seems to be the thing that they care most about. This report is wide-ranging, and there's a lot of it that's nothing to do with money, that's nothing to do with trying to take more from the Premier League clubs and redistribute it better. There's huge parts of this that are about equality, welfare, uh, an increased voice of the fans in the game, which have to be things that we work towards. There's a, an acknowledgement in the report that there have been great strides in attempts to improve equality, diversity and inclusion within football clubs, particularly over the last year or so, but that, of course, there is still so much further to go and they, they want to impose an, an action plan for each club to make sure that there aren't just paying lip service to these topics, but actually making actions to improve that. There's bits about women's football that basically the conclusion is there's so much to discuss when it comes to the future of women's football that we're going to give it its own dedicated review. Uh, there's uh, bits about urgent need for improvement of, of player welfare for those exiting the game, both as youngsters who haven't made the grade. We, we know now it is proven there are so many examples that have been spoken about so much of young players struggling mentally with the outcome of being released and not making it as a professional footballer and not having the support structure in place to be able to cope with that. And we know that players who retire struggle massively. The figures are out there. We know the stories. Financially, they struggle. Their relationships, personal relationships struggle their mental health suffers and there's big parts of the report that are about the need to improve the welfare of players exiting the game. There's other things like the introduction of a shadow board for each club where a group of 5 to 12 supporters, uh, generally part of a fan representative group, would be a shadow board. That means that the club would be obliged to properly consult them with matters of off-the-pitch stuff, not on-field stuff, nothing to do with football, nothing to do with meddling with the manager, etc. Just off-field decisions, important decisions that the club want to make. They would need to meet with a shadow board a few times a year. They would need to communicate with them. These are issues at many clubs across the 72 where fans 
are not asking for the world. They're asking for communication. They're asking to understand what people want to do with the football club that they hold so dear. There's another part about a golden share. This would be additional protection that fans would have for, for key items of club heritage. Again, we're not talking on-the-pitch stuff. These are questions of the location that in which a team plays. These are questions of the stadium that the team plays in, uh, the badge that they wear, the colours that they wear, questions of heritage for football clubs. Uh, a golden share being introduced uh, would give those an extra layer of security. It wouldn't be a case of owners being able to do whatever they wanted and being able to push them through um, without any issues. There would need to be proper consultation and communication. These are not sexy topics, are they, George? We can tell that because these aren't the ones that are being discussed in the media. But these are as important aspects of the report as anything else. Uh, but of course, on the business side, the finance and governance side, there's lots in there as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think the key one here is is the um, independent regulator for English football uh, being created, which will be known, or if it ever comes to fruition, as, as IREF. And the IREF will oversee financial regulation in football. I mean, this is something that it's pretty strange when you think about it, it doesn't already exist. And, and there was a very good thread when the when the initial report came out from a Twitter account called Against League Three that anybody who's finding this interesting should probably follow, where he compared the current means of, of kind of self-governance within Premier League football clubs or just within football clubs, really, uh, as being a, akin to giving uh, a child the option of eating a salad or chocolate every night for dinner. Basically, you know, what are they going to choose? It's always going to be the, the greed. Um a new owners and directors test uh, for clubs to be established, so a, a reform of, of the, the means that we currently see, uh, which I think is already starting to, to come to forth, kind of come into to play in in the EFL. Certainly, since Rick Parry's been in charge, you know, you look at some of the takeovers that take quite a long time to go through, and I think that is because there are more stringent tests going on. Uh, a new approach to, to corporate governance to support a long-term sustainable future of the game. And then the Premier League guaranteeing its support to the pyramid by making additional proportionate contributions contributions to further support football. Now, this would be either being a case of an increase of the TV revenue deal. So at the moment, I think uh, the EFL gets 16% of revenue, but uh, and then also an increase in the terms of the transfer levy, where at the moment, if a Premier League club buys a player from abroad, or with, I think amongst each other, it's only from the EFL where it's exempt. Um, they currently pay a 4% levy and the, the recommendation is, is that that would be raised and then are, are reforming the, the parachute payments as well um, where at the moment, you know, you see the, the figures of, you know, it's 1.23 billion in the, over three years in the report. Angus Kinnear said it's 1.5 billion with a further, you know, with 1.6 billion in the future. But when 52% of that is is being basically put into the clubs recently relegated from the Premier League, which in itself is creating a, a, a massive divide of quality uh, between those clubs and the EFL, which in turn is, is forcing owners, maybe such as the, the, the Derby County owner previously, to, to massively overspend in an attempt to get into the Premier League. So, And, and also, you know, uh, operating some um, financial practices that, that have, have caused them to get points deductions and, and get into all sorts of trouble as well. So um, plenty in there. And those are maybe unsurprisingly the areas that, well, some aspects where the Premier League and, and certain PL execs are not particularly happy about. Mm. I can't help but wonder whether Chairman Mao would have passed the new owners and directors test because uh, he would needed to be in order to be a chairman, of course. Uh, no, flippancy aside, I, I think we wanted basically to explain 
how we understand the report because we have put a lot of time into it over the last uh, week or so. It'd be interesting to to hear what you guys think. We're grateful to the NTT20 squad who have come up with a few questions for us to put to Tracy Crouch who oversaw the report and she's joined us on the podcast. We didn't want her to have to explain what was in the report. That's been published. That's already out there for everyone to read and we would recommend that people do. But what we did want to do was ask her some follow-up questions that people had off the back of it. So here's our chat earlier with Tracy Crouch, MP. Thank you very much, Tracy, for taking the time to speak to us on the podcast. And, you know, we've gone through there bits and bobs about what is in the, the report itself. And I guess it's quite a weird situation where most football fans are interested in what's in the report, but a, quite a small percentage of them would have actually taken the time to read it. So you've got this thing that everybody's interested in, but people don't necessarily know the full contents. In your opinion, given you know all the feedback that you've had and, and the way you've seen the report covered in the media, are there any glaring misconceptions that you think need to, to be righted in order for people to fully understand what is in the report? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's um, a joy to be on your podcast. Um, I actually think that the report is constructed as a holistic package of long-term reforms for football. Um, The remit that I was given was around the financial sustainability and what the future of English football looked like. That was for the whole of the pyramid. And although, you know, some of the some of the comments that I'm sure we'll get to (laughs) makes it feel like it's actually just a report for the Premier League. Um, But it's not, you know, I mean, I have grown up watching um, non-league as well as Premier League football. I've been actively involved in grassroots. And for me, you know, the whole of the pyramid is really, really important. So, you know, the, the report is about providing a good structure for regulation, for governance, for the involvement of fans. And then once you have that, then we look at redistribution um, of money flowing through the pyramid, as well as other bits. And Robin's the sort of kind of, you know, part of the wider package of financial sustainability. So from the response so far, and there's been plenty of good stuff and plenty of questioning of parts of the report, but what, what have been the, the bits that you've thought? Actually, that's frustrating because a lot of work's gone into this. There's a lot of detail in there. And I don't think this person has actually read and understood about the point that they're trying to make. Well, I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think you allude to some commentary from the uh, from some Premier League chief executives there. Um, I mean, I, it, look, it is a, a really complex document on purpose because if it hadn't have been, people would have said, "Ah, oh, but you know, she hasn't quite understood the intricacies of." you know and and trust me there's enough misogyny in football for you know people that, that, to, to literally jump on anything that might have been a mistake in the report and put it down to the fact that she didn't understand it so you know it's complex uh it goes through the intricacies of football finance and football governance in some detail and i think so i look at some of the commentary and i think you haven't read this report you know so for example you take something right well there's 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 two things right one redistribution um of, of wealth and we've seen some premier league chief executives come out and say well you you know you you can't have more money going down into the pyramid because you know clubs like berry would have just still wasted it and you know and blah 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 well had they read the report they would have seen that actually i'm not asking for more money to go throughout the pyramid under the status quo right because you're right it's good money going into potentially bad for, for some clubs not for most but for some but what i'm saying is 
sort out all the reorganization and the, the reform and the governance structures and everything else and you have confidence of your money going elsewhere in the pyramid and not going into bad so you know i think that's where it's quite clear that they haven't read the report they also clearly haven't read the report when i when criticizing things like the transfer levy um because actually first of all i never put a percentage on it um i put two um indicative figures of what it would look like if either of those were introduced, nor did I dictate where it should go. So I've put an indication of what one season's transfer window would look like. I didn't say it had to go to League One or two. You know, actually, it could just all go to grassroots. I think everybody would be happy just to see it go to the grassroots, you know, and mind League's one or two as well. But, you know, so you, you see these criticisms and you think, you know, people haven't read the report. And the other area where it's clear they haven't read the report is when people sort of jump on the back of alcohol pilots, um, which is specifically suggested for National League Premier and League Two as a means of financial sustainability and highlights the fact that actually in National League North and South, you can drink at the moment whilst watching a game, you get promoted to National League Premier and you can't, and that wipes out 60% of the business model for most clubs. Um, and therefore you have this sort of kind of perverse disincentive to succeed on the pitch. So had had people actually read that those sections, they might be slightly less critical of um, some of uh, what is being proposed. I can tell that it's it's difficult for you to to criticise you know some of the 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 quotes. But Ali and I obviously went on on Sky Sports on Friday night and brought some of them up. And and the one that you know we talk about um, misinterpreting or, or maybe deliberately doing so. But there's you know there's the Karen Brady quote in the Sun where she referred to it as being the government taking over football and that is a one area that I think it's important people understand that IREF itself wouldn't suddenly be the power of, um, you know, the Premier League football club's power suddenly landing on the desk of, of yourself or of the Prime Minister. This is an independent regulator who'd be looking to over oversee football. But from your point of view, if IREF was to happen and was to be set up, what would be the process put in place from now until it's it being set up to ensure that, you know, whoever was in charge did have the best interest at heart and had the experience to ensure that, um, football was re was regulated in the way that you set out. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it's not some arm, arm's length body of government, you know, um, where where there is a, a an appointment process that is approved by politicians. This would be something that's very similar to, say, the press regulator at the moment, where there is a panel that is set up to appoint the regulator. Now, obviously, somebody has to set up the panel, and the panel probably would be set up by government. But we already have a panel in terms of the press regulator. So you could argue that, you know, you just have that, but I wouldn't. But, you know, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. Um, so it would be completely separate and independent of government. It's not going to be some, you know, militant football wing of, of Westminster. You know, it would be something that is entirely independent of government. One of the uh, one of the, the aspects of it, which I feel very strongly from the questions we've got from our NTT20 squad as being a, a particular area of interest for all EFL fans is the owners and directors test. My understanding of the report is that, or my opinion rather, is that what you're suggesting massively beefs up the current model. Um, but for the benefit of the listeners, could you explain how this, uh, and I'm sorry to keep saying the word, but I've started so I'll finish, how this beefy owners and directors test would, would work in, in practice? I think one of the issues is that there has been several um, owners and directors tests um, and they don't they're not necessarily consistent. So as it happens, actually, the Premier League has a really good owners and directors test, albeit without 
reassessment and integrity. Um, and so what we're, what we're recommending is that there'll be one owners and directors test rather than three. Um, uh, it'll have a good character aspect to it, which is a similar test that is already in the banking securities and insurance sector. So again, we're not reinventing the wheel. It's something that it apply, it exists and is applied in other sectors. Plus there'll be a reassessment or reevaluation every three years. And I put a picture of the Blackpool fans on purpose um, to accompany this chapter because I think their tale is perhaps one of the the worst in in many cases. Um, and I remember some of you know as sports minister people writing to me saying you know please can you sack Oyston and I was just like it's not in my power to do that. Um, but um, you know actually if you have a situation where you've passed a test and then you're never being reassessed on it you can do whatever you like and we saw that at Blackpool uh, what this is saying is you have to continuously pass these tests to remain the owner the other thing that we're doing and it sounds sort of kind of um, uh, irrelevant, but it's not, it's not at all, but we're actually going to split the owners and directors test. Um, so you'll have one consistent test instead of three, but in two parts, because you have a very different test um, or a very different skills requirement to run a football club, i.e. be a director, than you do to be an owner, right? To be honest with you, with an owner, you just need the money. Um, uh, and you need to sort of kind of show that you've still got the money and good character and where it's come from. For a director, you have to ha show that you can run a football club. And I think part of the problem is in the past, some of the directors, unfortunately, haven't necessarily been up to scratch either. Well, that's the thing. In the, the, the examples that get brought up for obvious reasons are, are Bury and our Macclesfield, historic EFL clubs that, to all intents and purposes, we lost because of, of poor governance. Uh, and, and Peter, who's on our NTT20 squad, did have quite a direct question using those examples and, and essentially asking, would Bury and Macclesfield, do you think, still be with us if these recommendations, let's say, had been implemented 10 years ago? And if so, which specific aspects of it do you think would have created that extra security? Yeah, I do. I really genuinely do. And also Derby County would not be in the pickle that's in now. Um, uh, and uh, we actually, uh, we, we took some evidence from Mel Morris. Um, I, it was quite heartbreaking. And I know that Derby fans are going to be furious with me for saying that, but actually, you know, in a way, the sort of kind of romantic aspect of football you kind of want mel morris's to be you know you know the people who grew up in the town supported the club you know came into fortune and then wanted to you know take over the club and and you know be successful with it um and we asked him if the if the recommendations that we were minded to introduce were brought in would he be in the situation that is in now and he, he said absolutely not right and i think part of that is that there's a recommendation in there about real-time financial monitoring and you know when you've got an agile financial regulator then you know you have the ability to see things as they are happening rather than three or four years too late um so i'm confident that actually if we had the regulatory structures and Good corporate governance and of course you know the fan engagement let's remember this is the driving force then yes you would you, you wouldn't have seen a berry and you wouldn't have seen a macclesfield and i don't think you'd be seeing a derby we're now going to enter an interesting few weeks in terms of, of what happens because whether or not we're going to see your recommendations implemented and luke from the not top 20 squad may ask a question which i think in itself kind of exposes some of the problems that, that we're going to have in the coming weeks. He says, I think the interesting point is where is the government's priority when attempts come to water it down? What is the real focus? Is it stopping a Super League? Is it redistributing wealth through the leagues? Is it fan ownership and veto rights? 
what is the government's priority now you know as as we know that the premier league met last week i think seeing from andy holt's tweets this morning efl leagues are meeting today as well so what do you see the issues being going forward and is it going to be possible to stop as as luke says the you know the, the review itself being watered down when put into into action well, I mean, that's a question for government. I hope it's not. I do see it as a holistic package. You can't just cherry pick which bits you like and which bits you don't like. Um, uh, the, the Premier League have been consistent in their opposition to um, an independent regulator set up um, through legislation. And that is their position. And that's the position that has come out from their meeting on Friday. And so, you know, I suspect that they will campaign exceptionally hard for an independent regulator to be housed within the FA, a unit, if you like. Well, a unit is not big enough right, for complex regulation and uh, proper financial regulation, you know, prudential regulation. You know, it's just, it would be a watered down version and it'd be exceptionally disappointing if that's the outcome. Casey, before we let you go, just, just one last question. Um, and that is, what can we do? You know, as EFL fans, I mean, all the listeners here as well will be wondering, you know, if they want to support this, given how we know that a lot of um, well-connected Premier League execs are probably going to be on the phone to some of your colleagues. What, what can we, EFL fans, do to try and ensure that the good aspects, and particularly the ones that are going to protect the EFL the best way possible and, and ensure that you know, an increased revenue stream is, is made available to those clubs that need it, it what can we do to, to try and help and, and support it? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that let's not diss the Premier League entirely. You know, it is an exceptionally important uh, aspect of English football. It is the, the world's most competitive league. It is the world's most lucrative league. It attracts the best talent. You know, this is all for a reason. So, you know, where, where I agree with Christian Perslow is I don't want to kill the golden goose, but nor do I intend to. However... Football is bigger than the Premier League. And this is the point that, I mean, your, your own title says it, your own broadcast title says it. You know, there are 72 other clubs in the English Football League. The vast majority of people support a non-Premier League football club. So it's about making sure that your voice is heard as well, because otherwise it will be just be the voice of the top 20. And, you know, and, and football is and remains greater than that. So, you know, I, I think that we want to ensure, and I think we do do this in the, in the report, that people will still come and invest in football in Britain, in, in England and Wales, basically. But they need to do so in a, in, a, in a regulatory environment, which gives them confidence. And by doing that, you can redistribute the wealth elsewhere in, into, the, uh, into the pyramid. So what do you need to do? You need to make sure that politicians know your views. Right? because you've got clubs across the country spread out, really important to local communities. And this is important for your future. Thank you so much, Tracy, for taking the time to talk to us this morning. We massively appreciate crossing some I's and dotting some T's and answering some questions that we had off the back of it. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, George, there's a few things to kind of think about there off the back of our, our chat with Tracy Crouch. I think one thing to remember is, this is hugely ambitious, hugely wide ranging. There are huge suggestions, changes, recommendations that will be implemented if this goes ahead. For a lot of people, and particularly in the short term, those could be awkward, painful even. You know, if there is an acceptance that English football 
particularly in the EFL, needs to start cutting its cloth accordingly with a little bit more help, with better redistribution of the money that they are being given by the Premier League, that might mean cutting costs. That might mean spending less money on players. That might mean spending less money on player wages. That could mean that the way that we support our football team or what our football team looks like at the moment, there might be some changes to that. And and some of them might be awkward, might be painful in the short term. That's what I'm that's what I want to to say. But in so many other ways, I just see this as being something that would hugely improve so many aspects of the game. Firstly, in terms of fan engagement, communication. I find it impossible to understand from my perspective how increased obligatory fan engagement and extra communication would hurt teams, would not be for the huge benefit of individual clubs and the game as a whole. I cannot understand how a beefed up owners and directors test is not for the betterment of particularly governance and ownership in the EFL, driving away potential bad owners because, frankly, they probably would be put off by a lot of things that are being suggested, and in increasing the average quality, if you will, of an EFL owner, an EFL director, the clubs will be strengthened, the game itself will be strengthened. And and in terms of IREF, I think the thing I keep coming back to is English football hasn't governed itself particularly well over the last 30 years, hasn't regulated itself particularly well over the over the last 30 years. Now, a, a lot of money has been made, don't get me wrong, at the very top of the game, um, but that's not the only way to measure success in, in governance, I don't think, of a sport like football. And so, for me, we do need someone to oversee, someone to regulate, just as many other large industries have. The EFL specifically, its very structure trips itself up when decisions need to be made. Conflicts of interest that come from just pure self-interest have been tripping up EFL governance for too long. And there's nothing really that the EFL can do about it because of the way decisions get made in the EFL, i.e. the clubs, the owners of the clubs, realistically, voting on any key changes. That's why I... I'm very, very supportive of of this in general. I think it's a a hugely detailed report. It feels, you know, game changing in in a positive way, but in in a in a very real way. Instead of all the self interest tripping us up, instead of all the squabbling tripping ourselves up, tripping up progress in terms of improving governance of the EFL, I think this is something that that would have a hugely positive impact on the game personally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, the, the last question to Tracy at the end, um, you know, I guess we have a role to play in this and, you know, it's not an us against them point of view, but if you have the time and you feel strongly about it, by all means get in touch with your, with your local MP and set out some of the arguments as to why you think um, it's important that, that this isn't watered down and that, you know, the inevitable, and it, it is inevitable, you know, the inevitable attempts from the Premier League um, and from Premier League clubs to change IREF um, and to probably do without it entirely and, and to ensure that, you know, not too much more money is paid, especially from the TV deal down, um, it is upheld. You know, this isn't a, we're not sitting here at a, at a negotiation table using IREF and, um, you know, increase revenue to the to down the pyramid as a bargaining chip to, to force the others through. That that isn't what this is. Um, and as as Tracy said, this is a, a holistic approach. This is a whole package, um, and it needs to be judged like that on merit. I've always wondered what holistic like means in layman's terms. Have you got a good way of explaining that to me? I've seen it used yeah, in I mean, so many different 
ways, and I've I've never really understood exactly it, what it, it means. Even though I, I tell you what, it would be best if you were to imagine that a holistic began with a W. I think it would it would help improve your understanding of the word. Wallistic. No, holistic. Oh. Where it's it's you know it basically means that things are interconnected and can only be um, taken as a as a as a whole form, I guess. Right. Eat the whole pie, do not slice the pie. Yeah. I tell you what, I anyone fancy some pie? I'm really grateful to Tracy Crouch for giving us some time to to chat to us and answer some questions on the pod. I'm really pleased that we've started the pod in this manner because I think it's really important and we felt very strongly that we should do that. I also am really looking forward to talking about some football. So let's football. do that uh, because we yes. had plenty of it over the weekend. Uh, it was, as you called it, a shriveled docket. Uh, <laughs> championship action, yes, two league, one games, yep, some FA Cup second round action as well. But we'll start in the championship where six of the top seven at the start of the weekend were playing against each other in three fixtures and in particular... Uh, the headline game was Fulham against Bournemouth. This was between the top two, the two best teams in the league. Some would call them runaway top two. And it was on Friday night and it was 1-1 and it was a draw. And often we don't talk about draws, but we're definitely talking about this one, George, because I absolutely loved it. I think it was one of the best games of football we've had. Possibly, if you take out playoff games, possibly since we've been doing the pod. I enjoyed it that much. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Every single part of it. Iconic moments, tons of narrative, nine yellow cards, some good football. Yeah, I mean, how how it was nil-nil at halftime, I will never know. It was an open match from from right at the very start and Dominic Slanky missed a couple of decent chances. And immediately, you know, often I think with, with these kind of games where you, you know it's the top two sides, you know, Fulham were odds on to win the game. And, I, you know, I, I know that you... Not to, to drop you in it, but I know that Ali, you thought that they that they were going to win this one fairly comfortably, and it did kind of feel like possibly we were going to we were going to learn on Friday that actually Fulham were a, a fair bit clear, but it became pretty obvious I think within the first ten minutes that we had a, a proper match on our hands here, and you know even though Marco Silva said after the game that he his side were the better team, yeah, I mean I, I guess for, for for long patches they were, but if either team looked more likely to go one 0 up uh, in the first half, it was definitely. Um, Solanke who had those two it was definitely Bournemouth with Solanke and those two chances um, and then the goal to, to break the deadlock I, I missed I think seven seconds of this game of football <laughs> it was that seven seconds of this game of football where I wasn't watching you're a bit late getting back from having your makeup done which is what we do half time at the Friday night games George and I trot off to the Sky Sports uh, makeup room um, for a little for a light dusting for the most part, and you were just a little bit late getting back, and you came back in, and I was basically just shouting at you because I had seen something very very special—a Bournemouth goal from kickoff that surely George and you bang on about. You know, you've got very high standards when it comes to actually enjoying and being impressed by football goals, uh, and there seems to be the barometer, the crucial aspect of it. Is it unique? I mean, this one was, wasn't it? A set-piece goal, essentially, this was. from kickoff. I've never seen a goal like this before, so yes, it was. And, and I also loved, it was so weird because it was intricate. You know, the first three passes were, were very quick, short passes to create the space. It was then effectively a hoof. It was a beautiful ball over the top from Philip Billing, which, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't, a it was a long ball. Oh, that hurts me great, so much that you've called it a hoof. It was a delicate, beautiful ball, of straight, straight, literally, it was a straight ball down the pitch in between the two centre-backs a brilliant run from Solanke 
Um, I mean, his pace to basically get there <laughs> in the six seconds is unbelievable. And that was what the, the you know, the intricate passing was. It was the, the only, I mean, it was completely different, but the only um, goal that it kind of reminds me of in terms of pure audacity and um, training ground work was Joe Bryan's against Brentford in the playoff final where they clearly worked on it. It was a free kick from wide uh, where no one would ever shoot from, but they'd done their homework. They knew that David Rye would be out of position. And shock, guess who is the manager of Bournemouth and who was the manager that day? And it, it was Scott Parker. So he is somebody whose innovation when it comes to to set plays is more, you know, it's like an, you know, more like NFL than football, uh, American football than football. Uh, and it's great to see because it was, as you say, completely unique, a, a executed beautifully. Obviously, the, the hoof is, is um, doing Billing a massive disservice. I was more just going for the the polar opposites in terms of, of how I'm describing the goal. Um, and, and the finish. Let's not forget the finish as well from Solanke, which was you know, world class. It's so good. A lot what of a people, a lot of people would have blazed that over. Um, yeah. Scott Parker, interesting. You mentioned the NFL there, and it's absolutely reminiscent of something NFL style. But they've also had some coverage of their corner routines this season. They're not the only team uh, in English football, in world football, to use uh, basically NBA style screens or picks as they call them, to, to uh, blocks. I think we probably call them in English football in order yeah. to, to get someone in space from a set piece. But uh, a lot of, of discussion about how that's been inspired by the NBA. So basically, Scott Parker, one of those English blokes, and we all know him, who just love American sports. Sunday night's his favourite night because he can just watch back-to-back NFL games, probably get some NBA games on the iPad. That's, that's what <laughs> Scott Parker likes to do. And he gets inspired. Yeah. Of course, that wasn't the only genuinely iconic moment in the game because in the first half Steve Cook Bournemouth's warrior child who's been there forever and who's been kind of phased out but was brought back in because of Kelly's injury with a double block with mm. his chest Incre- you know both of yeah. them looked like there must be a handball in there somewhere absolutely not Steve Cook's chest as soon as it happened we had a tweet saying the title of the pod needs to be Steve Cook's chest this week and I thought, yes, it does. And I was quite disappointed, frankly, that the Saturday Night Highlights show wasn't changed to EFL on chest this week because it should have been <laughs> yeah. because we had Steve Kerr. And it wasn't just that, but Ryan Yates of Forest, he scored with his chest as well. A great, great weekend for EFL and chests. McFadgen scored an own goal with his chest. There you go. We, we had it all. Um, I just want to say, because I feel like the excitement of this all has probably led to some of certainly my worst ever analysis and insight. Uh, I, I was very impressed with how Fulham coped with going behind seven seconds after half time. you know, nil-nil at half time. game plan for the second half. We're probably, we feel like we're in the ascendancy. We've got to make sure they don't have those those chances in transition, which they were having, but let's just keep going and, and we'll get the win here. Seven seconds in, you're one nil down, shell-shocked. You've never seen a goal like it. Uh, and the crucial thing for me was how, they just stuck to their guns. Their composure was excellent. They stayed patient, Fulham. You know, they're the sort of side who, although they have Mitro up front, who's brilliant in the air, it wouldn't be right for them to to switch to a plan B, which was just chucking a load of balls into the box and, and chucking it forward and trying to get people around Mitro. Instead, they, they used their possession. They used Bournemouth's deeper and deeper defending to just keep working it and keep working it. And the idea was to get... Well, yeah, to, to flood the box with attacking players. But if you notice watching back in that second half, there's a period where all Fulham are trying to do is get Wilson and Kearney 
into crossing opportunities on the right-hand side of the box for those in-swinging crosses, which are so difficult to defend. And of course, they had one or two chances from those before Tosin uh, flicked in a brilliant header for the equaliser. So impressed with Bournemouth. Uh, Parker did some quite funky tactical stuff here. Some of it worked, some of it probably didn't really. But the goal will stand out forever in my mind. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then Fulham deserves some credit as well for their response, I think, in the second half in, in getting level. So a celebration of uh, a game that I think is definitely the best we've seen since at least March 2020. Um, and yeah, it was just a, a pure joy. And I hope everyone else enjoyed yeah. it as well. I, th- I think also some credit to um, Tom Kearney, who came on and was very, very good. Great to see him back um, doing Kearney things. And then also Mark Travers, who... You know, if you're going to look at this um, in a literal way, I'd say Travers was probably man of the match because um, if it wasn't for him, you know, if you look at the the balance of play, especially from from one nil to Bournemouth, uh, they had plenty of chances. He made one particularly very good save from a, a Micho header at, at one nil as well, um, which he parried into Cabano's path, who inexplicably uh, shot wide. But he was very good throughout, and he's a keeper who I haven't always rated massively. Um, but I do think, you know, even though Silver's probably right where on the balance of play mainly because they were 1-0 down for the majority of the second half. Um, Fulham probably had the better chances, but two sides here who really showed how good they are, I think. And even though a draw is is, a, is good news for West Brom and good news for the rest of the chasing pack because you know it, it keeps them within striking distance. Um, from what we saw in the pitch, there is a big, big gap between those two and the rest. We had Coventry hosting West Bromwich Albion early game on Saturday. 2-1 win for the Baggies. A big win, George, for Big Val. Massive win, massive win. It felt um, pretty pivotal. I, I'm, I'm fairly well. Not, I'm not convinced, but I, I be, wouldn't be surprised if they hadn't won this game. If um, we'd be talking about a championship managerial uh, sacking, because um, you know this isn't going to necessarily help massively. But there's no denying that a lot of West Brom fans are, are done with with Valerian Ishmael. And again, they've put in one of their best performances, uh, well, their best performance for the last few weeks away from home, um, which seems to be a bit of a trend, which doesn't really help uh, Ishmael's cause in, in trying to win over the fans. But they, they were very good. Um, you know, I watched this uh, in the first half, especially they, Coventry had a couple of chances on the break. Sheaf missed, uh, well, he missed the ball, basically with the best chance that Coventry had in the first half with, a, with an air shot. Um, at nil nil, but you know when Coventry threatened, it was it was on the break. It wasn't uh, necessarily at times where they were uh, on top, and um, the defending was incredibly poor. I thought for for the first goal, um, I don't know what Darbo was doing. It, it was really strange where the ball slipped in between uh, McFadden and, and Darbo uh, by Robinson for Grant to run onto. McFadden, who is not the quickest, gives chase, but Darbo just almost watches him go and then shots back. You can see afterwards. Um, you know his teammate shouting him saying where, where were you well, Why my, you, my, you know Why, my note here basically says Darbo playing right centre back in a back three is not ideal and we saw why no. he, 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 well, especially against he, a side like West Brom as well he's a right back he's a right wing back he he clearly doesn't have the instincts that you need to be a centre back and we saw that for sure in, in the first goal it was a nice pass from Robinson wasn't it and Grant yeah, it show, nice. showing his speed in behind you know teams don't tend to let baggies have much space in behind and, and that's why really but yeah I thought it was a bizarre because Hyam the centre back was on the bench and came on, and came on when Robbins realised that it wasn't working um, so I, I know that Todd Kane scored a crucial goal against Bournemouth it would have been hard to drop him and move Darbo out to, to the right side uh, as a wing back but 
you had an actual centre-back in Haim, fit enough for the bench, fit enough to come off the bench. And I wonder whether Robbins slightly regrets that. I, I was impressed with Robbins' quotes after the game because he was led down the path of... of you know, saying that the second goal should have been disallowed for handball. I think it struck Kipre on the hand as it was bundled over the line, some big goal mouth scramble. Uh, and he said, yeah, he probably handballed it into the net, but the ref couldn't see it. And that was that. And I'd love to see a bit more of that, a bit more understanding that like, yeah, it's not a perfect game. And yeah, we, we don't have robots refereeing the game. Thank God. Uh, and yeah, actually, I can see that the ref probably couldn't see that. So, you know, why am I going to start losing my marbles at that? Um, he, he went on to say it was what we deserved because we, we hadn't played well enough. So I just wanted to give credit to Mark Robbins because that, that truly delighted me, George. As you know, <laughs> I think there's a disproportionate amount of football coverage about refereeing decisions. And so anyway, anything like that, I'm going to I'm going to applaud uh, my only yeah. other note here is that Gardner Hickman stepped in in yes. midfield for West Brom. Moet, very good. Uh, sorry, Livermore, Mollenby suspended. Uh, Snodgrass, as quickly as he was in favour, is now out of favour, has been put on the transfer list, old school style. Um, and so they had a problem there. Gardner Hickman filled in. He's played a couple of games at right wing back when Furlong was out and slotted into midfield and, and did well. So clearly a young player that Ishmael trusts which bodes very well for him. Uh, on Sunday, QPR lost 2-0 at home to Stoke. Now, the, the the most eye-catching part of this was that QPR hadn't failed to score in a championship game since, I think, March. Something like 31 games where they had, they had notched in every game. Um, that is something they're very, very good at. And they only didn't notch here because Charlie Austin missed a penalty. It was 1-0 to Stoke at the time. Austin missed a penalty, or rather, it was it was well saved. It was a it was quite a weak, quite a timid penalty, which is not something I would associate with Austin. But having said that, it was right in the corner, and if the keeper dived the other way, it would look absolute class. So I don't want to do that classic um, outcome bias uh, analysis of penalties. Um, Vrancic was the main character, though. He produced a glorious through ball for Tyrese Campbell for the first goal. He produced a wrestling move on Johan Barbe to give away the penalty and then he scored the the doubler as we're calling it a delighted right uh, delightful right foot shot I didn't even know he had that in him with his right foot I thought it was just for literally just for balance just for standing on but uh, he did that so a brilliant away day for Stoke after back-to-back 1-0 defeats and of course I'm going to mention Tyrese Campbell's goal because he started here he was played through by Van Vrancic looks like the speed is still there still got jets in those heels um, and do you know what it's a waste of time, George. It wastes everyone's time when the ref makes Tyrese Campbell play on when he's one-on-one. Just blow the whistle, pick up the ball, put it on the halfway line, call it a goal. Don't waste everyone's time by making Campbell actually finish it because you don't need to. It's automatic. It's automatic. He's that good. And it really made me very, very happy. So this this is one of those where I tweeted after the game saying this is classic championship seeded batch, George, right? Because Stoke, you know, in a bit of a rut after a bad week, two games without scoring, two games uh, losing in a row. QPR off the back of a late winner against Derby, you know, looking good, scoring in every game, confident at home. QPR nil, Stoke two. Welcome to the championship. Yeah, um, I guess I guess that's right. I mean, there, there were some injury issues for QPR before the game as well, um, which may have played into it. A couple of the players who did play, Mark Wilberson came out before the match saying that they um, were struggling, including Austin himself. Um, surprising that Andre Gray didn't get the start on off the back of his ridiculous uh, last-minute goal as well in midweek. Um, I mean, a couple of interesting things here. I mean, it was an incredibly um, end-to-end game. You know, there were, I think, 42 shots in the game. Uh, QPR had 17 corners. 
uh, which is absolutely incredible. 21 corners in the game total. Um, and Adam Davis with, you know, always uh, who scored a very good place to go for, for championship stat stuff in games. And I don't think I've ever seen a player get a 10 before, but there's Adam Davis getting a 10 in goal for, for I mean, a penalty save, nine shots on target in total for QPR. And Davis, a player who um, made so many crucial saves, uh, who's often struggled to get into the side over the, over the last um, couple of years since, since his move. Um, but kind of making, uh, you know, him and Bursic have been competing for that for that jersey all season. And he's, I think, off the back of the of the, of the game yesterday is going to keep it for the time being. So, you know, a big win for Stoke because they've been poor recently. Uh, even in the victory over Peterborough, they, they weren't particularly good and, and Michael O'Neill said so. For QPR, um, yeah, there'll be frustration, of course, that they failed to score. But I think in the performance itself, you know, they'd have done a lot less in the final third uh, in other games in that run and um, and scored. So, um, you know, there's not too much to, to worry about. Good gang of Lancashire-based clubs in the Championship this season. George means we get a fair few Lancashire derbies. Uh, we had another one on the weekend. Blackburn won Preston North End nil. Unfortunately for North End's fans, it's another away trip uh, to a local side, another game that they've lost here. Uh, Rovers march on. And if I'm honest, I don't think a huge amount happened in this one, George, but Ben Diaz happened. Yeah, another great goal, another different kind of goal, a brilliant header, a good ball in from Kadra as well. Uh, those two looking to, well, starting to link up really nicely, which is positive for, for Rovers. Um, yeah, I'm not... I don't think Preston offered too much in the way of um, of a comeback. I know I mean, the, the Preston situation is, is quite a weird one where, you know, Preston are currently sitting in 18th um, because of the, the setup at the moment of the, of the championship. Um, you know, sneakily, suddenly there's a five point gap between 22nd and 21st. Mm. So yeah, those teams sitting... Colin said on Quest, they're closer to the playoffs than they are the relegation zone. Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, which is mad. Is that right? Yeah. Um, crazy the yeah, seeded back ladies and gentlemen way. the seeded back <laughs> um and but but you know i think Brighton, uh, Brighton, i think preston fans uh aren't particularly happy with with what's going on uh, at the club and aren't particularly happy with, with frankie mcavoy's um management and i think going away to uh blackburn um their rivals and putting in a a, a fairly poor performance you know they'll argue they should have had a penalty but I think you're kind of clutching at straws when that's the case um, having been behind the majority of the second half as well so um, it wasn't a great performance it wasn't a great game to be honest it's not like Blackburn um, were, were comfortably the better side there wasn't much between the two um, but that bit of quality from Britton Diaz again um, proving the dis- proving the difference for Rovers who just continue to to march on uh, continue to to show themselves as being one of the best of the rest I feel like Preston's penalty appeal is worth mentioning just because it, it looked like one and they will feel like yeah. they should have had a pen and therefore should have perhaps drawn this game and, and shared the points. I suppose it's quite easy to say, well, that goal against Fulham last weekend, which got you a point against Fulham, which was a triple handball and an offside. <laughs> you know, that's that's a bit of whether it's karma, whether it's balancing itself out over the course of eight days I don't know but um, Fulham will feel hard done by that they uh, were on the wrong end of that and Blackburn can feel a little bit fortunate perhaps that Nyambe's handball was not punished at Millwall beat Birmingham 3-1 Gary Rowett's Millwall beating his old side at Blues nice corner routine for the first goal uh, and uh, also another set piece goal for the second which you know it might all sound quite quite Millwall but um, no impressive I certainly enjoyed the routine for the first. I thought that was worth a mention. What struck me most in this game 
was how much more energetic Millwall looked than Blues, how much more purposeful and authoritative. All those sorts of words, you, you could get that sense from the extended highlights that you saw on Quest. And, you know, uh, Millwall being at home in front of their home fans are always, um, you know, they're always a lot better than they are away from home. It's a, it is the archetypal tough place to go in the championship, isn't it? But uh, that was what was notable for me and epitomised by Jed Wallace, who's an absolute menace, uh, and Mitchell, Billy Mitchell in the centre of the park. You just saw him buzzing around. I think there's parts of the fan base who'd like to see him getting more and more minutes. I know he's got plenty recently, but um, there's certainly parts of the fan base who have been a little underwhelmed by George Savile since his return from Middlesbrough uh, and probably look at Mitchell and think, well, if Savile's not scoring goals and goal threat was always his kind of best skill, um, then are we getting anything less from Mitchell? No, he's probably more dynamic in midfield. He's probably uh, he's probably got a higher work rate, more tenacious, snaps into tackles more. Um, so I think that there'd probably be a lot of fans who'd like to see more minutes being put into Mitchell's development uh, than perhaps a Savile or a or a Keefton Bell, for example. It's the first yeah. time Millwall had scored more than two goals this season, George. Well, yeah, and I was going to say it, it looked to me like a completely different. Um way they set up where we don't necessarily associate Mill with throwing men forward. Normally that's that front three of, of, of Wallace, Bradshaw and Afobe or Smith, if he's playing buzzing up top, but consistently every time they look to get the ball up the pitch, you, we were seeing I mean, Malone, especially from, from kind of left wing back, but also you look at Evans, his late arrival to the box for the goal. There was one, there was one Malone chance that was tipped over the bar by Etheridge late on where, when I think it's Wallace gets the ball and drives in from deep, Malone is basically in his own box and he absolutely busts a gut to get the whole way up the pitch and, and just struggles to to make kind of decent contacts on the chance to get it past Etheridge. Now, this isn't how we necessarily anticipate a Gary Rowett side to play, but it does feel like a lot more creative freedom uh, or positional freedom has been given to to basically the whole of the, the, the unit ahead of the back three. And then, of course, you've got Wallace scoring from a set piece as well. So impressive and and very different to what we'd expect and i think they did um relinquish quite a lot of that defensive solidity by doing so you know birmingham had 16 shots in the game they had their own chances i really like the birmingham goal i mean there's not much to say that's um positive here about about blues's performance but especially 17 year old jordan james who you know this was his second start i think of the season he's only in because um, the issues that they've got in centre midfield with with both um, Gary Gardner and Ryan Woods suspended uh, at the moment. So they're having to play a 17-year-old kid at centre midfield. And the composure and the feet, I was kind of, I had to re-watch it to make sure it was him when I saw it was him because it was it looked like the kind of, um, yeah, the, the pre-assist of a, of, or the pre-pre-assist of a, of a senior pro, the way that he was able just to get his head up, use the time, use his, um, his obviously good technical ability to get the ball into Dini, who played a brilliant one-two with, with Jukovic and an, an amazing finish as well. So lovely football, great goal, um, but not much else to cheer about for Birmingham. Um, but for Millwall, you know, it was a, it was a, a really good performance. And yeah, as you say, the kind of attacking um, a performance full of the kind of attacking intent that I don't think Millwall fans have seen at home for, for, for well, I mean, for a long, long time. I'd, I'd personally like to see Boya embrace Dini as the 10 with two of Hogan, the Duke and Anike in front. You know, it's this, the, the formation they started the season with, but with Chong injured long term, I would like to see Dini there because I think, you know, when they were doing well at the start of the season and they weren't just a defensive force, but they were very good out of possession, they were very well structured. 
I felt like the thing that was making the difference between them being a sort of fairly meh attacking team to a, a genuinely good one was Chong's quality in that 10 role, drifting all over the pitch, um, dynamic runner and a good passer, good ball carrier. Dini's not exactly that as a 10, but I think he's the only one in the squad who has the quality to link the play. And I, I think without that, they look very, not one-dimensional, but they just look a bit turgid, really. So, you know, you've seen McGree play in that advanced midfield role. We've seen him prove himself to be a decent goal threat, but not really a creator. So I'd like to see a game or two's worth of, of Birmingham setting up with that three at the back, with Sunjic plus one in midfield, you know, mostly screening, with the wing-backs, whoever's fit, because they've really struggled for fitness there, and then Dini with, let's say, Hogan and the Duke in front, uh, and Anike off the bench. I'd like to see that. I think that would be something that could work well. But um, I, I know that they had all three on the pitch by the end, but maybe something to look at in the next few games. Uh, Blackpool nil, Luton three, George. This one was quite a... Uh, well, I think for Nathan Jones it will feel like... Um, a bit of what's the word? Not justice is probably the vindication. Wrong word. Vindication, vindication. I just he's been so adamant, or at least he was pre-game in his pre-match press conference that things were okay, that the process was fine, that they're being done. Whenever they give up a, a big chance, it gets scored, and when they create a big chance, it wasn't being scored. But you know, everything in between that, the process, as, as we would often call it, was fine and that they'd get their rewards at some point if they could work on, on defending crosses in particular. And after the game, he said, we spent all week working on defending crosses when they took their chances here and, and got a really good away win in Blackpool. Yeah, they did. Um, and I think that's right. I think the, the performances have been fine. This was always going to be the case. They, they You know, it was going to turn and they were going to score some goals because they've deserved to recently. Interesting to see Carlos Mendes Gomez just plucked, having not played a minute since October, suddenly starting from from, from the from the beginning here, uh, playing 77 minutes, which is good to see. Um, albeit surprising for a young player like that to be brought back after finish issues straight into the side, but, but good. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the goals themselves... Bradley from a, from a set piece, a decent header at a bio at the back post as we're used to, and then and then Clark at the end. Um, it, it probably wasn't on balance to play a three nil game. I, I don't think um, you know they Blackpool will feel fairly hard done by um, by the by the by the scoreline. Um, and I you know I still think this is a, a Blackpool side who are very good. Chris Maxwell back in goal is going to be a big a big boost for them going forward. Your long lost cousin, um, but yeah, I mean for, for Luton, I guess it's just. Um, shows it'll, it'll be a big one for Nathan Jones, who'd have been telling his his team to trust the process and trust what they're doing and not get downbeat. And you know they, they got the rewards here. Well, he was telling the press pre-match. I was, I just love the the. I'm sure this is the same for most managers because one of them is heat at the moment and one of them is in a, lot, a much more calm environment. But the difference between Nathan Jones post-match interviews and his pre-match press conferences are absolutely amazing. Uh, after the Cardiff game, which they lost. I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically, this is the worst I've ever felt. Uh, I'm the worst manager of all time. I can't believe I made those decisions. It's all my fault and everything's terrible. I've got to look at myself in the mirror. And equally, we've got to defend crosses better than that. They weren't up for it. Uh, and then four days later, he's in the pre-match press conference and he's like, yeah, man, we're good. We're a good team, you know? Um, but essentially talking in data terms about the balance of play and chances created, XG-related stuff, big chances and that sort of stuff without really referring to it directly. Um, and uh, then they went and did the business. So, yeah, justification for him. We had two 1-0 home wins, George. Middlesbrough beat Swansea 1-0. Bristol City beat Derby 1-0. Which of those would you like to talk about? I think Borough Swans. Um, but, yeah, because 
Swansea were okay here. Um, I think is is the key thing to take out of it. Um, you know, Borough get that all important first home win under Chris Wilder. They're they're two from two now under him, and, and they are certainly upwardly mobile. Um, a good good goal from Jones. Uh, but on the balance of play, they probably didn't necessarily deserve to win it, even though Duncan Watmore had a chance to make it two 0 late on. Um, but most of the the attacking was done by Swansea. Um, you know, Peru had a couple of decent chances. Patterson, uh, but for a dive, which I think was fair enough, um, and he hit the bar at nil nil. You know there was plenty in here from Swansea. It was impressive, and it was certainly the, you know, they put in the best performance of any opposition side against Chris Wilder's Middlesbrough so far. Even if they were one of the two teams to, to lose to him, um, I really liked how angry Sporar looked after Jones scored. Where Jones probably the right decision would have been to square it. Um, but he managed to sneak in at the near post and you see the angle from behind and everyone else wheels away and Sparrow looks absolutely livid that he was, wasn't given his two-yard tapping. That's um, the classic. Probably if, quite... if Wilder gets asked about that after the game, and maybe he does, that's the classic football cliche of, I want my striker to respond like that. Exactly, that's I agree. I, I, know, I think it is good. Yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I think it's good to have a, a striker who's that, who's that selfish. Well, um, I think he so, should be happy for the team. I'm sure he is now. <laughs> I hope he is now. Mate. If you're listening, mate, let us know. What about Sol Bamba's dancing feet and, yes. and beautiful through ball? That's that the assist the of the weekend. Unbelievable. He... So good. Um, you know, people saying he couldn't play out from the back. Well, how about that from, from Sol? I mean, an amazing vision as well. It's a proper defence letting pass through to through to Jones. Um, yeah, I don't think Sol's had many um, assists in his career. Certainly not ones like that. But um, yeah, um, Impressive and you know a match-winning assist. So good on Sol. Bit of a breakdown from the Swansea defence for for Jones to be streaking quite that far clear. I think, albeit it was great speed and great composure from him. And it's a great story, Isaiah Jones, because Borough plucked him out of non-league football where he was playing with Tooting and Mitcham United. Uh, he had a loan spell with Queen of the South last season in the in the Scottish lower leagues, and here he is now, um, well, he's thriving at right wing back in in a wilder system. And yeah, I mean he, he carries the ball so well. At such speed, mm. uh, it's very, very impressive. I noticed that he is uh, the joint first most fouled player in the league per 90. And he's joint first, George, with Alex Scott of Bristol City, which leads me nicely mm. on to uh, the Robins Lovely segue. win. The Robins beating Rams, uh, which wouldn't happen in the Animal Kingdom, but has happened in the English Football League. And that's why we should protect and govern it better. Uh, Alex Scott, the 18-year-old, uh, turned 18 in August. He is across the EFL. Well, in the championship, he's the youngest player getting regular minutes, regular starts. Across the EFL, you've got Callum Doyle of Sunderland on loan from Man City and Tom Bloxham of Shrewsbury Town. They, they are ever so slightly younger than Scott. Um, and I think we're seeing week on week him thriving with the with the uh, with the extra game time with the development because it's clearly a player that Nigel Pearson trusts he started the season playing in an attacking midfield role mainly in a 4-2-3-1 now he's playing right wing back in a three at the back and you know that versatility reflects really well on such a young player the fact that Pearson doesn't think oh this is a specialized position that can only be you know wedged into certain teams certain formations quite the opposite he's like no he's got the quality in, in all aspects to impact the team in a number of positions. I think that reflects very well on him, as do as does the fact that he's the joint most fouled player in the whole league per 90, 
with Isaiah Jones. That speaks to the sort of player that he is. Quick feet, um, good agility and balance in terms of shifting his body weight to get away from defenders. And also, I think there's probably a, a character aspect to this as well. You're a 17, 18-year-old. You're the most fouled player in the league. You're probably being targeted somewhat. You know, it's not hard to imagine in the dressing room before the game, someone saying, look, they've got this kid. Let's give him a boot and see if he fancies it. And as far as I can tell, he just pulls his socks up. He wears very short socks, as a lot of young players do these days, and uh, cracks on. And if you look at the other, you know, the list of the players who are the most fouled per 90 in the championship, you've got Ryan Manning in there of Swansea, which really surprised me, but he's obviously doing something really funky with the ball. Uh, and then you've got Callum O'Hare, Siriki Dembele, Tahith Chong. Like, these are... This is good company for Scott to be in. Um, and his goal was a sweet, sweet strike with his weaker left foot, showing brilliant technique, the ball coming across. A lot of people would balloon that into the stands. But he struck it sweetly with power uh, past the goalkeeper, his second goal of the season. The first one was somewhat overshadowed because it was uh, to put Bristol City 1-0 up against Nottingham Forest. You might remember that was a game where they conceded two somehow in the last two minutes to lose. So that was uh, somewhat overshadowed. But uh, a player that I suspect we will be talking a lot more about, you know, he, he plays for a side that aren't doing particularly well, haven't scored a ton of goals this season. Um, but I dare say his development will help with that. For, for Bristol City, you know, they're 10 points above the relegation zone, which considering I don't think they're a particularly good side, I don't think they're playing overall this season at a particularly high level. I, I almost see that as a huge bonus, like um, that they're so far clear of it. Um, good stuff for them. And Nottingham Forest, George, 2-0 winners against Peterborough. Both goals from their central midfielders. Nice to get goals from midfield, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, this was pretty easy uh, for Forest. I mean, they may have taken a bit longer to break the deadlock than they'd have liked, but they were the better side here pretty comfortably. Um, and, you know, gone and got the first one after 72 minutes. Uh, and then Ryan Yates chesting it in um, from a corner uh, for the second as well. Uh, for Peterborough, it's just more frustration. Um, you know, they're their away form is is very very poor, but I think now just their form is poor. Um, you know they haven't won uh, a championship game since beating QPR at home back on the twenty third of, of October. They've lost five of the last seven during two. Um, they haven't scored a goal since a one all draw against Huddersfield back on the second of, of November. So um, yeah, really pretty desperate times now. And you know of of the three teams towards the bottom you know Derby feel like a lost cause anyway but you've got them and and Barnsley um you know you're relying quite heavily on Barnsley to to turn it around under Poirier's Bargi um but with with Posh you know you do still feel like Hull they, they do have the ability to be such a good side with this with this group of players that it's not forlorn hope yet but uh, at the moment they are they are dropping like a stone and, and there's nothing in the performances really to suggest that they're gonna turn it around anytime soon. Cardiff City 2, Sheffield United 3. This one hinged quite heavily on a red card for Sean Morrison at 1-0 to Cardiff. Before then, we'd seen another glorious assist from Joe Rules for Mark Harris. Uh, Cardiff scoring a first-half goal, rare, and a non-headed goal, rarer. Uh, really mm. nice little scoop from Rules into or onto the chest. Oh, there we go again, chest. Of Harris, who smashed it in. Now then the, the red card, the key moment. Clearly, Cardiff going pretty well, um, but just gave Sheffield United so much impetus and, and Cardiff were kind of scrambling around. Uh, there wasn't much they could do about Morgan Gibbs-White, who we spoke about last week on the pod. I feel like I could speak about every week on the pod until January when Wolves are probably going to recall him because they realise that he's Premier League quality and he's only 20 or 21. 
He cut inside and curled one into the top corner from 25 yards. Then he made a very clever run, combined well with Ndiaye to put it on a plate for Sharp. And then he drove forward in transition, powerful ball carrier, speedy with it, um, and a smart player as well, drawing the defender and flicking it right to McGoldrick, who scored the third goal. So a good win for Blades. Again, not one that I'm going to be getting carried away about because of the, the game state with them playing against 10 men. But it's amazing what three wins in a bounce can do, isn't it, George? They're only four points off the playoffs now. Yeah, I mean, it is, I guess, the reason why they probably may look to make the change whilst they still could. Um, but they were, yeah, they were impressive here. Um, although, as you say, helped by the by the red card. Um, I thought the red card was fair. I was quite surprised to hear that it was only Sean Morrison's second red card in 12 years. He's, you know, <laughs> the, the way that he plays. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, good for them as well to have certain players. I mean, Gibbs White was clearly the, the best player on the pitch, but for Billy Shark to have, have got two and two is important. For Dave McGoldrick to get a goal, you know, obviously Rian Brewster scoring in the first game as well. These are all players who were playing, who were underperforming under Slavica Kanovic. So um, certainly positive for, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, for Heckingbottom, it, it couldn't really have gone better his first week in charge, could it? We had two one all draws to finish. Uh, Reading one, Hull one. My notes here says Tom Holmes with a smiley face because he scored a bicycle kick. Local lad's first goal for his club. Really nice moment. Then Luke Southwood, sad face because local lad, academy lad, doing really well in goal for them, but sadly letting a, a long Malik's Wilkes shot just go through him into the net, which he should have saved. Um, he's been excellent this season, uh, but that was maybe him just being tapped on the shoulder by the goalkeeper gods of the championship. Uh, my other note says, Reading, to be fair, we always bring up when they win and we didn't feel they deserve to win. They probably did deserve to win this game and they didn't win. So that was sort of uh, abnormal in that sense. And then Barnsley won, Huddersfield won. Huddersfield's performance levels have dropped off a little bit. They'll feel like they maybe had the better of this one, will they? I think m my main note here is this was good for my Josh Caroma propaganda because I, I just there, there must be some very valuable, very valid reason for Corberan not playing Caroma much this season, even though they haven't got a huge squad and they haven't got a ton of options in his position. But it's very hard for me to understand how someone who was was there everything going forward for a large chunk of last season before his injury, just not really being trusted at all. Um, but he played here, he got a nice assist, he hit the bar with a Karoma special howitzer from 25 yards. I just cannot for the life of me understand how that player with a good team around him is not a huge net positive for Huddersfield, a team who are really struggling to score from open play. I can't understand it, but I'm sure there might be some Terriers fans who know a bit more about the situation than me. That is the championship. Big stuff in League One, mainly happening off the field, rather in the dugouts, George. Uh, let's start with uh, last week's news. Richie Wellens sacked by Doncaster. I think this one was on Thursday afternoon, maybe, or Friday morning. Uh, George, fair to say, overall, not what we expected from Doncaster this season. Uh, we predicted them to be clear of the relegation zone, certainly. And a big part of that was Richie Wellens being the manager. We have always rated him very highly because of the job he did at Swindon, one of the best first full seasons in management we'd seen. And the way that they played and the way he managed that squad, sensational. It's not been the case with Doncaster, that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to really know why. Um, I think looking back, it was probably quite a difficult job to take on given the low knees they lost um, after last season. Um, but similarly, for them to be so poor, 
uh, with the manager in, in Richie Wellens, who had you know a whole a whole summer to try and to try and get them well drilled, um, is is a strange one. You know, this is the second job now that he struggled with. Um, they didn't make a very good start in in League League One last year at Swindon either. Um, so it, it's it's bizarre because everything pointed at, at Wellens being a very very good manager at at EFL level who is destined to, to to rise up. And it's quite rare that you have someone who does such a good job at one club going in and really making a hash of it um, twice over because, you know, this wasn't just Donny being poor. I mean, they were, they're an abject side. They are very, very bad um, at the moment. So they had no choice but to make the change. It's going to be hard to know who to bring in. This is one of those classic cases of a club making what seems like a really good appointment on paper and it not working out. And you have to wonder, well, where, where do we go from here? I, I, I think it's a massive job and I don't think I would want it. Now, it's for the benefit of everyone that I'm not a prospective EFL manager, but I I can't think what my situation would have to be as an unemployed manager for me to be like, do you know what? I'm just going to grit my teeth and take this. Because it's, it's late enough in the season, George, for Doncaster to be in a, a really bad position with quite a small chance of survival. And it's early enough in the season that you can't really get away with coming in and doing the classic, like, well, you can kind of PR it sometimes and be like, well, this isn't really my fault. Like, don't judge me on this season because the damage was already done. Whoever comes in, the manager will have had 26, 27 league games. So if Donny do go down, even though they walk into a situation where, you know, in pure probability terms, they are much more likely of going down than they are of staying up. It's a, It would have to be relative, it would, not miraculous, but not far off. It, it's hard to imagine even if the manager does a 6 out of 10 job and they still get relegated, it's just hard to imagine that person being very popular because they will have had more than half of the season and the, 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 the bad vibes that come with the relegation just tends to stick to people. So um, I'm not feeling hugely positive about it. I mean, they've got the worst attack in the league, um, just nothing in the final third, particularly in recent weeks. And it's hard to imagine how that massively improves with the personnel. It's not a strong squad particularly, some nice players in, in certain areas, but not really up top. You know, you're relying on Joe Dodu, Jordi Hawula, and two lads who were on their first loan in, in Chakur and Vilka. Uh, and neither individually nor as a group are they performing well. So um, very, very tough spot for Donny to be in. And, I, and I, I, I just worry the most likely outcome, whoever is appointed, is that it ends in relegation. And until the very least July, the, the vibes are still going to be quite bad anyway. That's not necessarily the case with Ipswich Town, George, who also sacked their manager, Paul Cook, on Sunday. Mm. This was after, on a Saturday night, I think it was. They failed to beat Barrow in the FA Cup. Nil-nil draw there. That means they'll go back to Barrow for a replay. And that was enough for the new-ish Ipswich owners to pull the trigger and sack Paul Cook. Too many Cook, they said. One Cook's too many Cooks. Can you talk to me about this decision and your thoughts on it? I mean, it's it's fairly obvious when you when you invest so much in a club in terms of the playing staff uh, and in terms of the manager as well, with Cook obviously being appointed, when things are so clearly going below expectations or below where they should be, um, the manager's always going to be under pressure. And I think too often this season against poor opposition, they they struggle to turn their clear star quality into into goals and dominant performances and the Barrow game is another evidence of this where they they just struggle that they, they just don't look like a particularly effective football team you know we, we've seen in in flashes at times that they have been able to put it all together which I think serves as evidence to show what they could be feasibly 
Um, but yeah, it's it's not a massive surprise, especially when you've got owners who are so ambitious. Um, so who comes in? I, we're not sure. There are so many names being linked at the moment. John McGreal coming back to the club um, in a capacity as kind of under-23s manager um, just a couple of days before means that he's probably in quite a good position to at least get it temporarily. But, you know, if you look at his managerial career so far, he is not the calibre that you'd expect um, them to be to be hiring from. So, you know, the likes of... It's, it's managers who have basically got jobs at the moment in the EFL. Ryan Lowe would be one I would certainly be looking at. Michael Appleton, another one that I'd be uh, interested in, despite Lincoln's struggles so far this season. Somebody who can get this group of players together and get them turning into a, a proper top-class side. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, not a massive surprise, I, f- I feel, for Cookie. I, I hope he's going to get another job soon. I've got no doubt that he's still a very, very good manager. Um, but we'll see. Didn't work out, did it? Yeah, we're going to keep a close eye on that because... Already in 48 hours, I've heard quite a few different names bandied about. And of course, one option is that John McGreal might put it this way. The team is so good that even if you don't think John McGreal has the pedigree to take charge of it and win a League One promotion, let's say, or perform at a top League One level, the team is so good that would I be surprised if Ipswich just go on a bit of a tear at some point in the next month or so under John McGreal? Absolutely not. They could so easily do that. They, in my eyes, are not a million miles away, to be honest, doing that anyway. Could a change of, of voice, you know, could they have just been, could the squad have not taken to Paul Cook and, and a very simple change of voice, change of manager could be what they need to just get an extra 10, 15% out of them? Yeah, we've seen that happen many times. If they do go on a tear, McGreal's going to get the job, isn't he? And certain, you know, it'll be the classic. Well, give him till the end of the season. Like we're playing really well. Will that be? Will that be the best for Ipswich long term? Maybe not. Maybe not. But mid-season appointments are tough, and it's quite clear that you know they're thinking more short term than long term at the moment because of the money that they spend in the summer because of their desperation to get back into the championship. So interesting situation. Very interesting indeed. Uh, Accrington beat Fleetwood five one. There were two games in League One. Accrington picking up. A big win. Um, John Coleman in midweek. They lost on penalties to Wigan in the Papa John's. And Coleman had played like a full first team, just trying to get some confidence into the team after they'd won last week at Lincoln. And he was scathing. I think he said something like, this is my lowest moment as Accrington manager, which felt a bit over the top for a, for a defeat on penalties in the Papa John's. But for him, it was all about the, the performance, the lack of application, uh, against a reserved, uh, you know, a sort of Wigan second string side. Really strong stuff from his post-match. And it's only after they win 5-1 on the Saturday, George, that you go like, oh, clever. You've, <laughs> you've been around the block, haven't you, John? You're actually, he knows what he's doing. You're actually quite good at motivating an Accrington-Stanley squad. I, I forgot about that. Um, uh, just absolutely blitzed Fleetwood after Fleetwood went down to 10 men, George. Yeah, they were very good. Um, Ethan Hamilton in amongst the goals again, who looks like a, you know, when when he's good, he looks very, very good. Uh, Cobby Bishop, who we haven't seen enough of this season, also um, doing well. You know, they, they were well on top against Fleetwood well before the red card as well. Um, so this isn't a case of, of the red card massively changing the game. I think they'd have won it for Fleetwood. Um, you know, they need to get a manager in quickly who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna help them because it's uh, you know, 11 games winless now. They are not look, looking like a side who are going to be capable of getting out of this mess at the moment um, and making the change of, of, of 
getting rid of Simon Grayson hasn't had the desired effect yet. Um, so, yeah, be interesting to see what happens there. But for Accrington, it's a big win because they've been uh, poor in, in recent weeks. I just think Colby Bishop's stock is skyrocketing at the moment, not least because the three games that he missed, they lost all of them. And since he's come back mm. into the team, he scored the winner uh, last weekend against Lincoln. He got two goals and two assists in this game. His second goal, a backheeled flick from a, a low right-wing cross, just unbelievable finish and, and showing the, the confidence that he has uh, in his ability. Now, I want to make it clear that I am someone, as you all know, who regularly makes up phrases, who says the wrong thing, who makes a complete mess of idioms at all times, right? But I loved Joby on Quest saying that Colby Bishop had confidence oozing back into him. Because for me, the concept <laughs> the concept of oozing is sort of into out more than out to in. Um, but I, I, I knew exactly what he meant, and he's absolutely right. But for some reason, the phrasing just tickled me. Confidence oozing back into Colby Bishop. Uh, and, and, and what a player he is when that confidence is... Is, is throbbing through his. I can kind of, I can kind of see what is what he means. Like, as in, he's been quite, he'd, he'd been so good before, and then he's been quite poor at times this season. And every every goal that goes in, he's just like oozing in confidence. I, I completely understand I see, it. it I often see it with you. If if you've had a bad pod, the next week you'll start off really well, and I'll see that confidence oozing into you. But this is more of a this is more of a question of semantics. Really, is that in my <laughs> head, an ooze. I can't explain it. It's kind of it's out to in. It's oozing. Yeah, yeah, no, you know I the, get that. the the. Why am I going to say this? The garlic paste oozes out of the tube. It wow. It wouldn't ooze back into. Do you the never? Tube. Do you never just? Do you always get garlic paste? Just why don't you just chop some garlics? No, but you know some garlics. Got, plural of garlic. We've got a very well stocked uh, kitchen, so we've got something for all occasions. Okay. Anyway, good old Colby Bishop. George Sunderland drew one all with Oxford. And we wouldn't normally talk about it, but there was only two games in League One. And we were across this one on Saturday. We had our our weekend off, didn't we? And we made the most of it. A couple of beers, bit of Gillette soccer Saturday, making sure we knew what was going on at the Stadium of Light. Sunderland won, Oxford won. What did you make of it? Uh, I thought it was a game of two halves, Ali. Okay. Uh, I th- they tend to be. It was fairly level. Uh, I thought Cameron Brannigan was very unfortunate to get booked for a dive um, in the, within the first five minutes. It, it looked to me like it probably should have been a penalty. Uh, I think it was harsh. You know, there was certainly contact, even if he may have made quite a big deal out of the, the jump. But I think when you get kicked and you fall over, that's not a yellow card. Um, and then Sunderland took the lead. Oxford then were then in the ascendancy and, and deserved um, the equaliser, a good finish from Matty Taylor. Um, and very, very poor, very weak defending from Lyndon Gooch, who went down so easily, expecting to get given a foul, and, and credit to the referee for not giving it. But in the second half, it was all Sunderland. That was the best I'd seen Sunderland play for a long time. Um, they they deserved probably the three points off the back of that. Um, they were good. They put Oxford under a lot of pre- pressure. Simon Eastwood made a couple of very big saves, even if he could have done better with the initial goal. So, um, yeah, Sunderland better than I thought they were going to be. Probably a better point for Oxford than, well, certainly a better point for Oxford than Sunderland. Um yeah, so a, a, an improvement uh, in terms of the home side, for, for sure. And in the FA Cup on the weekend, the, the second round proper, uh, it's always quite a big one because, of course, the third round awaits. And yet again, for EFL teams in general, you are kind of the hunted rather than the hunters. 
uh, and a few EFL clubs did fall foul to uh, to non-league clubs, particularly Salford losing uh, at home to Chesterfield on Sunday. That was a great win for the Spyrites, who do look very impressive, I must say. Liam Mandeville, who I remember uh, looking quite tidy at times as a youngster at Doncaster, scoring a good goal for them. Um, only one draw, as mentioned, Ipswich and Barrow. What a you know, regardless of the headlines being all about Paul Cook's departure, uh, what a day out for the Barrow fans. We know one, Daniel, who's on NTT20 squad. I think he left about 5am to get on the coach for that one. So uh, brilliant that they will welcome Ipswich back to Holker Street, whoever will be in the dugout. John McGreal, by the sounds of things. And then just shout out the four League Two teams who beat League One teams away from home. Really impressive from Harrogate, whose late winner is proper Titanic music stuff. Uh, Hartlepool winning at Lincoln. Uh, new manager Graham Lee there uh, doing very well. I, I dare say we'll talk about him more in depth when Hartlepool play their next league game. Uh, Mansfield, the Stags beating Doncaster. Uh, this Doncaster side, not an impressive side, but still some good football played. And their third goal, Mansfield in particular, was absolutely beautiful. Uh, and Port Vale went to Burton and left 2-1 winners as well. What a weekend. What a pod, even if I say so <laughs> myself. Bit of a uh, bit of serious chat, bit of football chat. Yeah. And I'll just be. say at the end as well that we've just seen uh, Sky Sports Football have just tweeted the clips of our um, bit on the fan ed review. So if you want to watch that, go to Sky Football. I'm sure we'll, we'll re- retweet it as well. And then you can see the hot. If you're not already bored of it all, if, if you haven't heard enough in this podcast, then you can find it there. Thank you so much for Tracy Crouch MP for joining us. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what we spoke about with Tracy uh, and either side of her appearance as well. We think it's quite an important thing to talk about. And we hope that you don't mind that we did so today and we pushed the football chat back a little bit. But what a treat to reflect on an entertaining weekend in the Championship uh, and bits and bobs in League One and the FA Cup as well. I've been Ali Maxwell. He's been George Ellick. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast sponsored by Betfair. And we hope that if it's the first time you've listened, you might subscribe so that you get all pods fresh on your doorstep as soon as they are released. We'll be back again on Thursday to preview the weekend with a betting show. We're off to Leighton Orient against Swindon tomorrow night in treacherous conditions. Looking forward to that one. Go well, everyone. Thanks for listening.